For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening, The Temple of God, we're in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Tonight, we're going to get basically to verse 1, and then we'll continue in the weeks to come through the rest of these verses. All right. We're moving at a fast pace. Hold on. We're going to move quickly through Revelation 11. Uh, As we arrive now at Revelation 11 this evening, John has been recommissioned in chapter 10 by the mighty angel that has, uh, that strides the earth and the sea. If you remember the Lord Jesus Christ, all authority has been given to him. He's got his feet planted now on the earth, his feet planted in the sea, um, signifying, if you will, his authority over creation. And that angel, the mighty angel of Revelation chapter 10, has now given John an open book and commanded him to eat. It's open because it invites John to read. But not only to read, it invites John to take the book into himself. He's commanded to eat. And in the language of Psalm 119, the book is sweet to his taste, sweeter than honey to his mouth. But it is a book nonetheless that is filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe, written on the inside and on the backside, if you will, uh, filled, nothing can be taken away, nothing can be added. It's complete, representing the execution of God's decrees of judgment during this time of the end, during this time of the church age. And so the book is filled with these judgments, filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe, filled with the judgments of God poured out on idolatrous and unbelieving earth dwellers. And considering that judgment, as John takes the book to himself now, and he eats it, he understands their terrifying fate and the fearful task that lies before him. And so taking the book into his mouth, what is sweet to his taste becomes bitter to his stomach. We're reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 5, that knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So what is sweet to the Christian? What is sweet? God's word is sweet to us. Understanding the, the, both the goodness and the severity of God, that prophecy of judgment becomes bitter to John in his stomach as he faces the responsibility that he's been given in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John understands the content of that prophecy and it sits in his stomach as bitterness. So as John consumes that book then, John is consumed by the book. And as Amos said, Amos chapter 3, verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? It's in that manner that John then is given his commission as a New Testament prophet, if you will, a prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ with the prophecy of Revelation. Little book reveals the bitter and the sweet, both the goodness and the severity of God. And as John takes up his commission in Revelation chapter 10, he knows, think with me, John knows in taking up this commission with the, with the way this commission is given, John is completely aware that he is part, a part of God's typological dealings with his prophets. Because do you think that John has read the 
book of Ezekiel, the prophecy of Ezekiel? Certainly he has. So John sees himself in this typological pattern. He walks, if you will, in a pattern that has been established in the ministries of prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Haggai, Zechariah, which we'll look at tonight. He continues in a course that has been set by the apostles, and he follows the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a typological pattern that we see in the prophets, that we see in the apostles, that we see in the the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And brothers and sisters, it's a typological pattern of which we are now a part as the Lord's church. The church in this also follows the example of our Lord, also follows the example of the prophets and the apostles. We too have been given a commission. We are to be witnesses to him until that day comes in which the Lord will descend with the sound of the blast of a trumpet, uh, in flaming fire, in the words of Scripture, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not know or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time that vengeance is being poured out in justice and in consummated glory, he returns, being glorified in his saints and admired among all those who believe. Goodness and severity. Do you see? Bitterness, the bitter and the sweet. With Paul, we are to rejoice in our sufferings. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And we rejoice in our sufferings because with Paul, we understand that we're filling up in our flesh, as it were, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We're doing his work, gospel work, for the sake of his body, which is the church. And like John also, we too have been given a stewardship from God. We've been given a great commission. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. We've been given the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul says, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So the torch has been passed to us, right? The commission given to the prophets, the commission given to the apostles, the commission given to John in Revelation chapter 10, this commission has been given to us. The torch has been passed, so to speak, and we are to take up the word of God, and we are, as John was, to prophesy. So again, into that work, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to encourage us in that. That's not an easy work. That work is going to be wrought with difficulty. We know that from our own experience. It's going to be wrought with difficulty. That work is not easy. As our brother uh, prayed earlier, uh, talked about earlier, we're going to face persecution. We're going to be the subjects of slander. We're going to be the subjects of accusations. We're going to be the subjects of persecution. That's the way it is. We've experienced that, haven't we, already? That's going to be the case. That is going to ramp up. Uh, Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. So the book, the purpose of this book, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to encourage the church militant in her work for the Lord Jesus Christ as a light that shines in a dark place. To encourage the church militant as she wages the good warfare during the period of her tribulation. And it's so that, brothers and sisters, we might be prepared to take and walk in 
the commission that we've been given, that we can be faithful in it so that we might be warned, might be exhorted, might be instructed, might be comforted, might be encouraged, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ultimately, as the Lord has said, it's so that we might endure, so that we might be overcomers, that we might persevere through our own suffering. And as the Lord says, to he who overcomes, I'll give him the crown of life. So this book is for the church today. It's for you and I. It's not for some far off distant future people who are going to experience those things in a far off distant future location or place or time. It's for us. It's for the church today, the church throughout the church age. And we are studying this book to hear what the spirit says to the churches. Amen. We have much to hear and much to be encouraged with from the prophecies of this book. So as we consider revelation together, then the judgments are being poured out. The wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of of men. Demonic hordes in the course of these judgments have been unleashed upon the earth, wreaking havoc. We are in a culture of death. Death spreads across the globe. The devil prowls, seeking whom he may devour. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ bears witness in all of that as a light that shines in a dark place. That's our context, if you will. For Revelation chapter 11 then. And what we now see in Revelation 11, John has been given his commission in Revelation chapter 10. And now in Revelation 11, we see the church executing her commission. That's what we're looking at in Revelation 11. And I'm, uh, I hope to persuade you of that and clearly explain these things from Revelation 11 as we work through the text. But that's what we're looking at in Revelation chapter 11. We're looking at the church executing the commission that she's been given by our Lord to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ as lights that shine in a dark place. And what does that look like? What does that entail? What do we have to look forward to? What is coming? And how does all of that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? We're going to consider all of that as we work through this text together. So now our text begins, Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Now I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. We're going to look at what all of that pertains to, what all of that means, what all that signifies in the coming verses. Let me give you a summary. In summary now, after measuring, the measuring of this temple, we're then introduced to two witnesses. And it's these two witnesses that carry out their commission through the end of chapter 11, verse 13. And what do they do? They testify during this age of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll soon see, At the end of their testimony, at the end of the testimony of these two witnesses, they're martyred. They're killed where the Lord himself was crucified. And soon after, they are raised from the dead. They ascend into the clouds. And soon after, all of their enemies are destroyed. Okay? We'll see that as we work through the text. It's at that time that this cycle, the cycle of the trumpets, is then brought to a close with the blast of the seventh trumpet, Verse 15, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
What do we see at the end of the, the cycle of trumpets? It's exactly what we saw at the end of the cycle of seals. We see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, his judgment upon his enemies, the ushering of his people into glory, and his triumph at the end of the age, his ushering in of a new heavens and a new earth. We see Jesus Christ return in glory. And once again, in that then, with the conclusion of that cycle of trumpets, we see a finished or completed cycle. A recapitulated cycle, it's a cycle that repeats this same period of time from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, moving forward in time a little bit, progressive parallelism. So it's a recapitulated cycle that is inching forward during that period of time in progressive parallelism, bringing us to the cusp or the, the precipice, if you will, of a new age. The judgments of God are poured out upon the wicked, And we see now, even now, a parenthesis picture of the church in her witness during this age. And then it ends with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in victory at the end of the age to usher in a new age. So with John then, we now begin Revelation 11 by turning our attention to this temple of God referenced in verse 1. Now, John obviously sees a vision of the temple. Okay? John is given a reed like a measuring rod. Then John hears the command from the angel, and presumably the angel who had commissioned him in chapter 10, and the command from the angel is for God's prophet now to act out, if you will, a living parable that is meant to signify something. John's going to take the measuring rod and he's going to measure the temple. This is a living parable, a living parable, if you will, and it signifies a spiritual reality. We're going to talk about that as we go. Now, If this is consistent with what we see in Scripture, and it is, if it follows the pattern of God's typological dealings with his prophets, and it does, then this vision and John's conduct here, this living parable, is instructive. It's a living parable. It's a symbol meant to point us to spiritual realities. We're going to learn something from this living parable that John is asked to live out. God has done this with his prophets before. We're going to see that. John is now asked to do something, and we have something to learn from it, right? For example, Hosea is instructed to take a wife of harlotry, and Hosea is asked to live out, if you will, a living parable that signifies a spiritual reality. We learn something from Hosea's prophecy, from Hosea's example in that. Jeremiah is told to hide stones. He's told to hide stones for a purpose. Ezekiel is instructed to portray a siege on a clay tablet and then to lie on his side. On one side, 390 days. On the other side, 40 days, right? It's to signify something. It points us to spiritual realities. John, here in Revelation 11, is given a measuring rod and he's commanded in verse one, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. He's going to take measurements. Now, like the pattern itself, Like the pattern itself, this imagery of a specific measuring, if you will, measuring rod in the temple, this imagery is saturated in the Old Testament. It's saturated in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament drawer, or the Old Testament file, if you will, from which this command is taken, uh, from which this imagery is pulled, is Ezekiel, the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 48, where Ezekiel himself is commanded to measure the temple. And we're not going to turn and read 
all those chapters from Ezekiel. I commend those to your own reading. Take some time and read Ezekiel 40 through 48 after we go through this tonight. And I pray those, those chapters are going to edify you, make more sense as you go through them, right? The drawer, the Old Testament drawer, the cabinet from which this imagery is pulled is Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Now think with me. If you remember the context of Ezekiel's prophecy, the people of God have been cast out of the land of promise. They've been cast out because of their idolatry. They've been cast out, exiled because of their sin. They're wallowing in exile under the judgment of God, and they're exiled in Babylon. And when you read that in the Old Testament prophets, in Babylon specifically is mentioned, there is a New Testament reference, if you will, to Babylon. We understand Babylon in a different way, reading in the New Testament, where in Revelation, for example, Babylon refers to the nations of this world, the kingdoms of this world that have become, when Christ returns, the kingdoms of our Lord and the kingdoms of his Christ. Um, Babylon ref- represents this world system, if you will. So there is a literal physical Babylon. The Israelites in Ezekiel's time are exiled in Babylon. They're wallowing in their misery in Babylon under the judgment of God. And this all has reference for a future time as well. There's um, a near and a far fulfillment, if you will, to what is being spoken of in Ezekiel. Israel in exile in Babylon has become a useless vine. They become a fruitless planting because of their idolatry. God has determined that he will destroy Jerusalem. God has determined that he's going to destroy the temple. And the temple is a symbol of his presence among the people. The temple, an image, if you will, a symbol representing God's covenanted presence amongst his people, dwelling in the midst of his people. And if you think about all of that imagery then, Psalm 137, you can turn there with me if you like. Psalm 137 then records the misery of the people in their exile. And if you're looking at Psalm 137, the heading over my psalm says this, longing for Zion in a foreign land. Think with me for a moment. And again, we're making connections here, aren't we? Those in exile in Babylon were longing for Zion in a foreign land. Brothers and sisters, we've not yet entered into that land which has been promised us. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells. And don't we, brothers and sisters, living in a foreign land, don't we long for Zion? Amen. There's to be a connection made between their longing in exile for Zion, for Jerusalem, for the promised land, and our longing in our Babylon waiting for Zion, okay? Listen to the misery recorded by the people. Psalm 137, listen how this records uh, their misery in Babylon. Verse one, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. In other words, they taunted them. Right. And those who plundered us requested mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we be glad? How can we rejoice in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt 
Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. They're miserable and they're exiled, you see. This this expresses the misery of their heart and soul in exile. They long for Zion. They long for God's judgment upon their enemies. The bitter and the sweet. God's promises, God's promised judgment upon the wicked, right? It's in this context, think with me now, it's in this context of that bitter misery in exile that God promises to restore them. God comes with a promised restoration, a promise to rebuild the temple, a promise to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's a promise to rebuild so that God himself will dwell amongst them. They will be his people and he will be their God. Think with me about Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel 36, you can turn there if you like. Ezekiel 36. And think, Ezekiel was a prophet now to these exiles in Babylon. So Ezekiel 36, in verse 15, the Lord says, I will not let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore. He's going to put an end to their derision. He's going to put an end to their taunts. I will not let you bear their reproach any longer, nor shall you cause your own nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord God. Verse 23, God says, I will sanctify my great name. Verse 24, I will take you from among the nations. Verse 25, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Verse 27, I will give you my spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes. Verse 28, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Verse 33, and the ruins will be rebuilt. I think if you're in an exile in Babylon and you're in misery, longing for Zion, are these words encouraging to you? You bet they are. <laughs> Very encouraging. Right? Ezekiel 37 then. In Ezekiel 37, the Spirit of God makes of their dry bones a great and mighty army by his Spirit. Verse 21, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are taken from among the nations. In other words, he said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. God here is seen to be taking his people from among the nations. Verse 24, David is set as king over them and they shall have one shepherd. David's been dead for generations. Who is he speaking of? This is a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ will be set as king over them. He will sit on the Davidic throne. He will rule and he will reign and they will have one shepherd. They will be one people. They will have one shepherd. Verse 26, God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Look at these promises of God of restoration, right? And verse 26, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle, it's my temple. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. They shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. What is God promising? God is promising a rebuilt temple. God is going to restore 
Jerusalem. He's going to restore his people. He's going to restore. He's going to rebuild, if you will, the temple such that God will dwell in the midst of his people forever. That's his promise to them. Now that comes with the destruction of Gog in the land of Magog and the Gog oracles that follow. God pours out his judgment upon the nations, after which God will restore his people. Immediately after which, immediately after, after the destruction of their enemies, Ezekiel, chapter 40 to chapter 48, Ezekiel is commanded to measure the dimensions of the rebuilt temple of God. Ezekiel's told to measure, measure the temple. This would have been thrilling to the exiles in their misery. It would have been thrilling to the people of God to consider these things. And the, the measurements, if you will, that Ezekiel takes are phenomenal. It would have been thrilling to the saints in exile to think that this is God's promise. This is God's promised restoration. This is going to be God's promised temple. Uh, there's going to be a restoration of Jerusalem. It's going to be rebuilt. Its gates are going to be hung. Its walls are going to be restored. God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. Now, when the exiles actually do begin to return to Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, under the prophecies of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they do, in fact, at that time, begin to rebuild the physical temple. But that group, if you read there in Ezra, that group that remembered the former temple, I believe that's Ezra chapter 3, that group that remembered the former temple before it was destroyed, to that group filled with excitement coming out of Babylon over the restoration that God had promised in Ezekiel 40 to 48, when Ezekiel himself measured, gave a, was given a vision of the temple, the new temple, and measured the temple, the temple foundation that was being laid in Jerusalem at the time of the exile's return in Ezra chapter 3. The temple was small in their sight. The temple was small, and they realized, they realized, knowing what the temple was before, and now this rebuilt temple, not even being rebuilt with, in their eyes, the glory which it had before, they realized that the promised restoration was still as yet future, and they wept. They wept, Ezra chapter 3. The prophet Haggai records the Lord's response to them in Haggai chapter 2, verse 2. You can turn there. So we turn to a few places here. All of these come together. It's just uh, wonderful to see how the Lord puts all of this revelation together for us. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, It's interesting to note, Zerubbabel, we'll see in Zechariah, is a, a picture, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. He's going to be charged with rebuilding the temple. We'll see how that connects in a moment. But the Lord says to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, to the remnant of the people, verse 3, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, that temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed by Babylon? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? The Lord acknowledges to them that this rebuilt temple in Jerusalem is not the temple that he's promised them. 
He recognizes that and he asks them, is this not nothing in your eyes? Yet now, verse four, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word which I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not worry. Do not be discouraged. Do not despair. In the same way that God was with them when he brought them by a mighty hand out of Egypt, God is now with him as he brings them out of Babylon with a mighty hand as well. This is not going to be the promised restoration. God has not forsaken you. God has not left you to your own devices. God will fulfill all his word. Verse six, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That is the Lord himself. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. This, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the glory of the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. How is that promise going to be fulfilled? That's the subject, if you will, of Revelation. How is that promise going to be fulfilled? How is God going to build this temple? What is that going to look like? Well, we have another prophecy, if you will, in Zechariah. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1, if you're there at the very end of Haggai. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. After having exiled them to Babylon, I'm returning. I'm going to restore the people. I'm going to restore the temple. I'm going to restore its former glory, even greater glory than it had before. I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. What is a surveyor's line for? It's measure out, right? <laughs> it's to measure out the dimensions of the temple, to plan for its foundations, if you will. So Zechariah runs into four craftsmen on their way to Jerusalem. He runs into a man with a measuring line in his hand in chapter two. Where are you going, Zechariah asks. And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. As if to say, the fulfillment of God's promise is near. It's at hand. I'm going to measure it so that its foundations can be laid. The work is going to begin. God is going to see to it. He's going to restore Jerusalem. He's going to rebuild his temple. His presence will be among his people, and he's going to bring his people back from exile. Do you see? God's promise is sure, and he sends a guy to measure for it before he starts. Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day because in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If you keep remembering that promise of God, right? And the, the inclusion of the Gentiles from Romans chapter 9. We've been talking about that on Sunday mornings. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people and I will dwell in your midst. That's what the temple signifies. It temp it, the temple signifies God's presence in the midst of his people. God dwelling in their midst. 
then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Man, the Lord is faithful to his word, right? And the Lord comes through with power and the Lord will, the Lord will see to it that his word is accomplished. Chapter four, verse six. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Won't be by bricks and mortar. It'll be by his spirit. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And here again, we see Zerubbabel as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord of hosts sent the Lord Jesus Christ to call his people to himself, to save a people to himself, to redeem undeserving sinners. And through the salvation of an undeserving people, the Lord Jesus Christ is building a glorious temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, right? Living stones upon living stones. And he himself, God himself, indwells that house, if you will, indwells that place. It's by his Spirit that he tabernacles among us, and we will be his people. In the end, in Revelation the Bible says that the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, has no temple. Why? Because God and the Lamb are its temple. God dwelling in the midst of his people for eternity. It's a beautiful picture. It's not some brick and mortar building. It's the people of God. The Bible says the people of God, you are the temple of the living God. God dwells in you. God dwells in his people, dwells in the midst of his people by his spirit. Not even the temple of Herod could match that temple. The temple of Herod didn't even match the measurements that Ezekiel took in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Herod's temple wasn't the restoration of the temple. The temple that everybody's waiting for in Jerusalem isn't going to match those dimensions. It's not going to match that glory. What are we waiting for? We're not waiting for brick and mortar building on the eastern side of the Mediterranean in Jerusalem. We're waiting for the finished, completed building of God's people. <laughs> That's what we're waiting for. All of the elect gathered together from the four corners of the earth, living stone upon living stone, the body of Christ gathered around the throne with clothed in white linen, with palm branches in their hands, singing glory, hallelujah to the lamb. That's the temple we're waiting for. That's the restoration that has been promised. The disciples marveled over that building, that temple of Herod, as they sat on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. And the Lord said of that temple, not one stone will be left upon another. Not one stone. It was not the rebuilt temple. It was not the promised temple. It was not the promised restoration. It was not the glorious temple that God had promised. Jesus said, right, in his earthly ministry, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. In other words, the true temple of God, 
who was the presence of God among his people in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He, the temple of God, if you will, and destroy this temple, Jesus Christ says, and I will raise it up at the last day. I will rebuild it. It'll be resurrected, if you will. Three days I will raise it up. In other words, the true temple of God would be rebuilt in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Speaking of himself, Jesus is saying there that he is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. He is the true temple. But what of all those with whom and in whom God is said to dwell? What of all of those? In their union with Jesus Christ, they have been given the the gift of his Spirit, and they are said to be the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but rather fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Who is the temple? We are. Those indwelt by the Spirit of God. What is the temple? It's the church, the church of the living God. Brothers and sisters, it's it's all of that that we have to take into consideration as we consider the context of Revelation chapter 11. It's so important to our understanding of Revelation chapter 11. If you don't get that, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. So let's meditate on those things. Let's commit those things to our understanding. All of that Old Testament prophecy pointing to a glorious restoration of of the temple of God in which God will dwell in the midst of his people. And what is that temple? It is the church of the living God. You see the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is, in Revelation 11, what is the rebuilt temple that God has promised? The glorious temple, filled with the glory of God. The temple whose foundation was laid by Zerubbabel. That Zerubbabel, that type of Christ, who is himself the chief chief cornerstone. And think with me. Jesus Christ, where do we see Christ in the opening of Revelation? We see Jesus Christ walking in the midst of the lampstands. Those are lampstands that are placed where? In the temple. (laughs) He tends to those lampstands, tends to the lights that sit atop atop those lampstands. The Lord Jesus Christ himself cares for them. The Lord Jesus Christ supplies them with oil by his spirit. He's the one who walks in the midst of his people. He walks in the midst, as it were, of the promised temple, the promised dwelling place of God by his spirit, the church of the living God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul says, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Can't be stated any more clearly than that, can it? (laughs) You are the temple of the living God. That, brothers and sisters, is the context of Revelation chapter 11. John sees a vision that is rich in Old Testament prophecy, rich in Old Testament imagery, then verse 1, now Revelation 11 verse 1, like Ezekiel before him, like Zechariah before him, like the man with the measuring line in his hand, John is giving a measuring rod and told, rise 
and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. He's to measure those who worship there. When John is commanded to measure the temple, we understand then in Revelation chapter 11, we understand his vision to be a symbolic representation of the church. In God charging John to measure the temple, it's, it's as if God is saying, this is the way that I plan. This is the way that I've determined to fulfill those prophecies that I gave to Ezekiel, to Haggai, to Zechariah. This is how that's fulfilled. It's fulfilled in the church. As he gives the command to John to measure, it's as, as though God were saying, this is my doing. It is a work of my spirit, my hand. I have ownership of it and I'm planning to fulfill it. Take the measurements. The foundation is being laid. Take the measurements. The building is being erected, right? I am building the temple. When John was exiled on Patmos, when John was given these visions, when he was writing to the church, when he was doing all this, there was no temple in Jerusalem. There was no temple in Jerusalem. The Romans had come through in AD 70 and raised it to the ground. Not one stone left upon another. Destroyed Jerusalem. Killed many of the Jews. So this vision given to John should have a similar effect on the Lord's church in our time of tribula tribulation as it did on the remnant of God's people exiled in Babylon during the time of their tribulation. It would have had great, it would have been great encouragement to the apostle John. We should ourselves revel in this promise of God, revel in the thought of this glorious temple being built. This is what's going on right now, brothers and sisters, during this age. We're a part of that temple. The temple is being built. We get to um, the blessing, the privilege of engaging in that work, of seeing it built through the preaching of the gospel. We get to participate in that. That is what God is now doing. And it is glorious to behold. And it will be glorious when it is complete, consummated in the new age. There is reference to the heavenly temple throughout Revelation. But John isn't asked to measure that temple. He's measuring the one where the people of God now worship, verse 1. He's measuring the one with the court outside that is trampled by Gentiles, verse 2. The place which the, in which the Lord's witnesses prophesy. John is measuring, as it were, the church. And John, incidentally, John is told to measure the naos. There are two words that can be used for temple. This is the word naos. The word translated temple, the word naos, is a word that refers to the inner sanctuary, the, the most holy place behind the veil, the place where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, the place in which the high priest would enter once a year to make atonement for the people at the altar of God, as it were, a place where God himself is said to dwell between the cherubim. In other words, this is the throne room of God. Measure, if you will, the most holy place. Measure, if you will, the throne room of God. And its, it's dimensions are massive. <laughs> In other words, John was not told to measure the Huron, which is the outer areas of the temple, the temple grounds, the temple complex, if you will. Those who worship there in the, the Naos are the high priests, the great high priests entering once per year. Those sanctified, those consecrated to enter the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And how were they sanctified to enter the most holy place? They were sanctified by blood, set apart by blood, the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. In the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats. They put a bell on the hem of the garment of the high priest so that in case he was struck dead in there, they could drag him out by his feet when the bell stopped jangling. 
right? We don't need that any longer, brothers and sisters. How are we sanctified? How is it that we formerly blasphemous, insolent sinners, how are we given access to the very throne room of God? We're given access there because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of a greater sacrifice, the blood of a better surety based on better promises. And we can enter the most holy place. That's where we worship. Do you see? We worship in his naos. We worship in his presence. Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as a living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's amazing that you and I could offer anything acceptable to God. But what we offer him in worship is acceptable to God because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Peter says, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, we are those who worship there. When we worship together, when we gather for, get, for worship together, when we're worshiping here tonight, we are worshiping, as it were, behind the veil worshiping in the presence of God. And we worship there because our forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ, went before us. That should encourage us. <laughs> Amen? That should encourage us. Should encourage the people of God in their time of tribulation. When, when times get difficult, when times get tough, man, that should be rocket fuel to your faith. So John measures the nows. The altar, the people who worship there, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the worship of the church. That altar is significant. We continue to see that altar in Revelation. And that altar, remember, is not the place where the blood of bulls and goats is sacrificed. That altar, if you will, has been rendered obsolete by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ has done away with all those sacrifices. But rather, rather, this altar is the place under which we see the souls of those who have been slain for their testimony, the souls of the saints, the souls of the martyrs, and the place upon which the prayers of the saints are offered up in the incense as sweet incense, as a sweet aroma before God. It's another picture, if you will, of the worship of the Lord's church. Our worship, then, we understand this from previous texts. Our worship is crucial to our victory. If we're going to overcome, if we're going to persevere, if we're going to endure through this age, it's going to be through worship. Crucial to our witness. It's crucial if we are to overcome as witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through our worship here. It's through our worship in the naos of God, as it were, that we are connected to the heavenly naos, that temple where God is said to dwell, where God is said to be enthroned, the very throne room of God, in the heavenlies. And we're going to see more and more of that as we continue to work through our text. I pray this is a blessing to you. We should be encouraged by it. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this precious vision that you've given to the apostle John in his exile and how it encourages us and ours. So we work through this time of tribulation, the church militant in the time of her work on this earth as we, your temples being built and as enemies assault, 
the church faces difficulty and adversity and suffering, we know that you have sealed your people upon their forehead. Our names are engraven upon your hand. We know that you will preserve us to the end. You are our God. You are faithful to your word. And we rejoice in what you've done through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to redeem us and to preserve us and ultimately, Lord, to glorify us. We long for that day. We long for the heavenly Zion, for the new heavens and the new earth, for heavenly Jerusalem as those who dwell in a foreign land. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you tarry, Lord, preserve us by your spirit. Strengthen us for the work that you've given us to do and may we be faithful in it for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the sake of his elect. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.